This presentation is brought to you by the University of North Carolina Department of Orthopedics. It's intended for your education and your entertainment. Hi, I'm Doug Derschel, Chairman of Orthopedics at the University of North Carolina, and I'm presenting today a lecture entitled Fracture Healing with Plates and Intermedullary Nails to help dispel some myths and provide you some education about various types of fracture and some education. We all know there are two types of fracture healing, direct bone healing and indirect bone healing. It's been often believed and spoken that plate fixation of bones will always lead to direct healing of bone, that is healing without fracture callus, and that intermedullary nailing will always lead to indirect bone healing, that is healing through callus. This, however, is a gross oversimplification and is simply not true. For any sort of fracture healing, there's a natural course that is followed and it goes something like this. First, the body provides interfragmentary stabilization of the bone fragments so that there's less motion at the fracture site and so healing can begin. Then, through various means, restoration of continuity and bone union occurs. Finally, there's substitution of avascular areas at the fracture site by direct aversion remodeling and ultimately modeling of the fracture site that restores the anatomic continuity of the bone. These, fractures, fra these things always happen in fracture healing. However, the process varies whether the healing is direct or indirect. The type of bone healing, direct or indirect, that will occur at any given fracture site depends on both the mechanical and the biological environment present at that fracture site. The choice and execution of the treatment that a surgeon may employ for a given fracture can affect or determine both the mechanical and the biological environments. We must remember that plating and intermedullary nailing are techniques of fracture care they don't constitute nor do they guarantee a specific type of fracture healing. As we move forward with this presentation, we'll discuss the requirements for direct and indirect bone healing and how plating and intermedullary nailing play into those. Direct bone healing, as we've discussed, is bone healing without callus formation. The radiographic appearance of such healing is simply the welding, almost, of the bone together. The fracture line simply melts away without any evidence of external or periosteal callus. Uh, in the examples that are on the slide, in an animal model, this healing occurs over eight weeks with complete dissolution of the fracture site. Similarly, in the other example shown in a human, this tibia heals with direct bone healing after having been rigidly stabilized, in this case, with a plate. There are certain requirements necessary for direct bone healing to occur. These are the following. An exact anatomical reduction of the fracture is required. There can be no displacement or distraction. Secondly, absolute stability of the fracture is required, such that there is no micromotion at the fracture site. In practical terms, this involves compressing the fracture uh, with the fixation devices. And finally, thirdly, there is required that there is the existence of a sufficient blood supply, this is the biological part of the equation, to support 
direct fracture healing. When direct healing occurs, it occurs through two modes, what we call gap healing and contact healing. Let me explain those. Gap healing is a process by which direct bone healing occurs across small gaps. The requirements for gap healing to occur are that the gap size must be, must be less than or equal to one millimeter, and the gap must be what is referred to as mechanically quiet. That is, there must be no micromotion of the bone ends at the fracture site or the gap location. When these requirements are met, gap healing occurs through the following three stages. First, the small gap is rapidly filled with woven bone at right there at locally at the gap location. Once this bone is in place, then haversion remodeling of avascular areas at the edges of the fracture site occurs. And finally, then the woven bone in the gap is remodeled again by haversion remodeling. Contact areas uh, are also important in direct fracture healing. The contact areas, the area where the fractured bone is directly in contact with the other side of the fracture, these areas protect the gaps by absorbing the stress and the compressive forces that must be applied to the fracture for direct healing to occur. These contact areas uh, heal by direct aversion remodeling with osteoclastic cutting cones going at right angles to the contact site at the fracture and aversion remodeling occurring directly across the fracture site. So to bring these requirements and methods for, of direct healing back to the uh, clinical situation, let's mention the implications for plating. If a surgeon is to expect that direct bone healing will occur after a fracture is plated, that surgeon must assure that the fracture is anatomically reduced and that there is interfragmentary compression across the fracture site. This compression must meet the criteria for gap and contact healing, such as gaps must be no more than one millimeter in width, contact areas must, must exist and must be quiet mechanically absorbing the compressive forces and this almost always requires a long plate with compression fixation and a large number of screws six to eight screws in a small bone and eight to twelve screws in a long bone finally direct bone healing will only occur if the vascularity at the fracture site is preserved surgical technique then must assure that blood supply to the fracture site is not disrupted Let's turn our discussion now to indirect bone healing. Indirect bone healing will occur in a fracture whenever the criteria for direct bone healing are not met. Gap healing cannot occur if gaps are greater than one millimeter in size or if they're not mechanically quiet, if there's micromotion. Uh, in situations where gaps are large or micromotion is present, this microinstability induces bone resorption at the fracture site and therefore periosteal new bone formation or fracture callus will predominate as the primary mode of healing. Radiographically, indirect bone healing is, is seen in, by seeing periosteal fracture callus, callus outside the main con confines of the cortical bone that bridges the gap. This can occur with casting, it can occur with intermedullary fixation, or it can occur with any fixation that does not provide absolute stability. 
in the example shown here, a forearm bone with a plate on it, Evett shows indirect bone healing, ossifying fracture callus, showing that there was some microinstability at the fracture site, so that indirect bone healing predominated. So to summarize this brief presentation, plating does not universally resort, result in direct bone healing. Direct bone healing can only occur when both mechanical and biological requirements are met. These requirements are that the fracture gap must be anatomically reduced, the fracture must be quiet, that is there's no micromotion, with contact areas absorbing the compressive stresses and gap areas being no more than one millimeter, and the vascularity must be preserved. Indirect bone healing will occur whenever the criteria for direct bone healing are not met. And this can be with plating of fractures, intermedial nailing of fractures, or other modes of fracture stabilization. And finally, direct and indirect bone healing can occur in different parts of the same fracture. If a portion of, this, of a fracture meets the criteria for direct bone healing, that uh, method of healing will predominate. If another portion of the same fracture mechanically or biologically does not meet the criterion for direct bone healing, then periosteal bone formation and indirect bone healing will predominate. Finally, we must always remember that nailing and plating and other fracture stabilization are methods are techniques to provide stability for fracture. None of them guarantee a particular type of bone healing. The orthopedist should think about both the mechanical and the vascular factors involved in choosing and applying techniques for fracture stabilization. I hope this brief summary has been helpful and I thank you very much for your attention.